0: Have you ever stopped to think about yourself and your story? If someone were to write your memoir, what would it say? We all seek some level of authenticity, but have trouble removing the labels and finding our whole story. Welcome to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. In this program, we'll explore diverse stories on identity to help determine what is truly yours. Now, here is your host, Diane Dewey.
1: Hey, thank you for dropping in. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Diane Dewey, and I know that busy schedules get in the way of meeting the folks we want to. Dropping in, it's a lost art. When I was a kid, my parents would sometimes go over to the neighbor's house or vice versa, just dropping in on them. Or we'd be hanging out in the living room and somebody would knock on the door. Right away, it was a fun surprise. Where I live now, on the Gulf Coast of Florida, I sometimes don't see our neighbor friends. Our digital lives haven't made it easier. Instead, it's more complicated. It's time to drop in and see what folks are up to. We'll do a deep dive into the subject at hand. We're dropping in to find out what makes our guests tick, artists, musicians, and writers who have discovered how to make a statement, perhaps one that goes against the grain. Making a contribution to the world is a tough goal, but here are people who've come at it usually the hard way and won. We'll listen to their diverse stories about identity. Identity can refer to biological, nurtured, gender, cultural, racial, spiritual, and other labels we assign ourselves. Insider, outsider, hipster, square, or nerd. Sometimes the I in identity gets lost. Everyone wants to become an authentic self, despite the odds against it. We each have a context, whether it's in the family of origin, an adoptive family, or a marriage. And that makes maintaining an identity, the call to rediscover and reclaim who we are, all the more challenging. For me, the call came when, at 47 years old, I got a letter from my Swiss biological father. Having always known I was adopted from a German orphanage at age one, I faced his question, would I like to meet him? I would, I said, why did I agree to that? Maybe I was filling a void. My beloved adoptive father who taught me how to build a barbecue by hand had just died six months before. I'd ended a long-term romantic relationship with a man who drove me crazy for wanting to be something I was not. I was ready for a new anchor, and that letter started me on a 16-year journey of learning my roots and discovering a new identity. I visited Switzerland, my paternal homeland, and went cross-country skiing in the Engadine Valley with my biological father, Otto. He'd done... 18 ski marathons. I was petrified with the sweat pouring out of me there on the glacier, but I told myself I could keep up. Maybe it was to please him. The Angadine is a special place, very raw, very rural, remote and untouched, where the old Latinate language Romanche is still spoken. It's almost extinct. And this struck me as being like I was, far, far away from who I had become as an art gallery assistant in New York, and maybe who I would die off to make way for another personality. My biological identity had been obscured, but back there in my father's homeland, I had revelations. Why had I gone to Vermont years before and become a cross-country skier? Had my genetic coding been unspeeling all along? And what else would I learn about myself that had been hidden? Otto and I visited my biological mother's family in Northern Germany. We learned that Helena had passed away before I could meet her, but the family showed me pictures in an old musty smelling leather album. In the photos, Helena wore brightly patterned outfits she'd sewn herself. I thought back to my teenage years when I told my adoptive mother that I had won sewing lessons to make the kind of clothes I had to have. It was another uncanny connection with my biological identity, but that's not all. It turns out that although Helena had actually died in 1987, it was not before she had taken a job in the orphanage to be with me that first year of life not before she had met a US serviceman stationed in Germany and had moved with him to America where they settled in Rochester, New York, one state away from where I grew up in Pennsylvania, not before she searched for me all her life in both Germany and America, and not before she somehow learned my whereabouts in this closed adoption and arrived at my family home near Philadelphia. She was turned away at the door but Helena's family told me these stories that I was to learn were true. Because I've been curious and even obsessive, I'd read about adoptive children and how our identities can be forever questioned. Stories about our origins abound, but are any of them real? And what binds us to the truth? I learned that in the foundling homes in the UK during the 1900s, if a woman left her infant child, she would have also left a small trinket These talismans might be a ball of yarn, a coin, or a shard of pottery, whatever the mother had at hand to connect her to that child. If she returned, the token would reunite her with a daughter or son, but more often the child grew older with the locket or the stone or the small metal coin in their pocket all their lifetime sometimes as a remembrance of a mother that once was. I'd had no such mementos until now. That late summer day in northern Germany, I found out that Helena's siblings had kept her baby spoon, her pearl earrings, and a grandmother's ring for me. And while I didn't have her, and would never have the touch of her hands to my cheeks, or the sounds of her lilting voice in my ears, through these talismans, I felt I had found her love. It was as though an idea took hold that Helena might come back and claim me in another lifetime if I held on to these things. When I asked her siblings what had made them think they'd ever meet me to save these family artifacts, they said, we just knew. They didn't question their intuition. It was something I'd have to reconnect with, a faith in what I knew all along if I were to find my inner guidance and stay true to my identity. In every life, I believe there are several reincarnations. Inner deaths not just externally, but deaths of the soul. There's a cycle of rebirth and renewal as old beliefs wither away. Just as in a marriage there may be inward divorces, estrangements, and remarriages, there can also be a rekindling and reuniting. I feel as though my story is about finding love after such a death of the soul. I'd just lost the most important man in my life, an adoptive father, but I'd won the lottery with Helena's biological family and Otto's. I knew that many others didn't get that chance. And even though it would be years before I pieced together what really happened to put me in that orphanage, I'd gained strength and the validation to move forward. Through meeting biological family, I realized that love is the strongest force in the universe. People across the globe will find one another, especially now with the DNA kits. I've also learned that the truth has a special force all its own. It will prevail over deception, no matter what the costs. It's a trust in the world, a world that had before been uncertain. I'd been told by my adoptive parents that my biological family were dead, Sifting through the layers of deception that were well-intended and for my protection is the subject of my book called Fixing the Fates. Suddenly, neither my heritage nor my destiny seemed no longer decided by others. My identity was formed by parts of all these people, biological and adopted, but I also became aware that I was a person I had created myself. I had to ask, who did I imagine myself to be? After I sift through, who I am is who I designate myself to be, the labels I attach myself to. We're always in the process of becoming, and part of this process is to look beyond a traumatic past and push through self-limiting beliefs, often to do a reality check on self-love where every dream is attainable. My job was to resist the traps of magical thinking, either too positive or too negative, and accept that parental love is imperfect and paradoxical. Part of my arsenal in this fight was knowledge. With a master of science in mental health counseling, I've tried to unravel my own story. And now as an award-winning author of Fixing the Fates, I help writers get to where they wanna go with their manuscripts. By analyzing the work, determining whether the intention and the execution match up in the story, I investigate writer's themes and look at how the language carries them out or doesn't just yet. Writing takes shape in the editing. I've crossed out and replaced all the way along. Then I had a year's plus worth of content in copy editing and fixing the fates. Reviewing the text to make it as real as life itself is an irresistible urge for me. At True Nord Media, I'm aided in this by two ACE editors to light the way we have a, um, to light the way towards publishing, we have an on-staff book agent to make your book a reality. My fellow writers work to form truths and feelings that we want to polish and share through story. I came out of the art world in New York, where for much of the 1990s, I worked at the beautiful Guggenheim Museum. It was a place of great visual beauty, whether it was painting, sculpture, or video art. Visual arts relate to how you set a scene in creative writing. It's the revelation of the senses, sight, smell, sound, and touch that brings the scene alive. Since we live through our physical bodies and feel instincts there, it's key to listen when the stomach goes into knots or our breathing gets shallow or our eyes are squinting. Maybe we can't digest what's happening or relax enough to breathe or there's some part of the picture that just doesn't add up. Writing is a great way to tune in and access what's happening with ourselves. We make sense of our own thoughts and emotions by laying down words side by side like bricks. There is both left brain logic and if we can articulate the emotion, right side feeling brain that forms a whole. It's what I've tried to do in Fixing the Fates, which readers say is like a page turning novel. I hope that you too will find the inspiration to define or redefine yourselves from listening to dropping in. We're stopping by to talk, to take a deep dive and skip the small talk. We'll meet a musician who's written a Grammy award-winning song when before his dyslexia delayed even his reading. We'll hear from a best-selling writer who didn't believe in his own strength until he found it through bodybuilding, violence, and finally sentence building. An author who did things that she swore she'd never do, traveling in an RV, for example. Now she lives full-time on the road, enjoying wanderlust. An American writer who found the rug had been pulled out for her, that as a wife living in Qatar, she no longer was that person. Gender questioning persons for whom birthright is a starting point for the conscious choice of deciding who we are. Important truths about diverse identities always worm their way out by listening to others get a foothold on who they are and learning about their process is to become more ourselves i hope you'll take away clues for how to do this yourself you may find the person you've always known or imagined yourself to be dropping in guests are people like you and me but who've shown the world what it means to be an individual fight the odds sift through, create, discard, and reclaim, and to listen to their intuition. Not always easy with all the noise of our busy lives, yapping brains, and our self-judgments. And now we're empowered to tell our diverse stories. Authors, writers, musicians, and artists have been my teachers on how to arrive at a place that's centered and even brave, especially when the facts around me were collapsing. Their creativity is contagious. When we listen to their stories, it's easier to recreate ourselves the way we had intended. We might have gotten derailed by something shiny or focused on something that turned out to be false. The distractions are not failures. They're proof that we're still growing. Jim Carrey said that depression occurs when your avatar no longer identifies with who you're trying to be. The psyche knows what's real and what's not. Its signal is to become whatever is vibrant to you, an inexplicable affinity with African drums, a textile, or a poem. We construct identity constantly through an organic process of binge and purge, accepting and rejecting. At Dropping In, we'll explore diverse stories, what makes people unique, and even fascinating. We're done with shoehorning ourselves into preconceived notions of who we should be, being told who we are. Dropping in stories are stories of self-discovery. They enable us to find our truth, reconfigure ourselves to that, and imagine who we want to be becoming stronger for it. By listening to others talk about their own path, ours becomes less fearful. We're always supposed to know what we're doing, but often we don't. And there's no shame in that. We need a compass. Drop into the conversation, create a new dialogue. You'll get the answers you seek or even the questions you want to avoid. The adventure continues on dropping in where unique stories become part of the fabric of diversity. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, today's guest is John Shore, author of the novel Everywhere She's Not. He's a man who discovered self-love the hardest way possible by being abandoned by his mother the person that you think will never leave you in life even though this was a character he created david i think you'll find this is closely hewn to the author himself you won't want to miss this story we'll be right back on dropping in
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out. Finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page, Dewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Dropping In with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to ddewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to Dropping In.
1: And we're back. Thanks for Dropping In. Today, we're with author John Shore, author of Everywhere She's Not, He's going to tell us how to stitch together a broken heart, uh, having endured the unthinkable, um, the abandonment of his mother at an early age. Thanks so much for being with us, John Shore, Jr.
2: Sure. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Um, I want to get right right to it here. Um, you created this really fantastic read of a novel. Um, and I loved this character, David, but we, we must glean that he's based on um, you and your real life experience. Can you tell us a little bit about what had happened to you when you were a young boy, you and your sister?
2: Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so when, uh, when I was uh, eight years old and my sister would have been, you know, nine, 11, maybe 12, she's three and a half years older than I am, um, our father left. We just had a regular nuclear-style family. Dad went to work every day. Mom stayed home and took care of us. Two dogs, cat, guinea pig, regular structure. And uh, one day, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'd never seen my parents fight. So it was a surprise uh, when one day uh, my dad sat us down and said, I will be leaving here tomorrow. Tomorrow I won't be living here <laughs> <laughs> anymore. And my, I was like, what? Uh, because this was in 1966, and at that time, divorce just wasn't... Around. It wasn't in my neighborhood. I didn't know anybody whose parents didn't live together anymore. But the next day, um, he left. And he just moved into an apartment about 10 miles away. But, you know, you look around at your dinner table that night, you know, there's, where he usually sits is there's nobody there. So my mom, this is in 1968, and my mother very quickly morphs into a full on hippie radical. We were living in in Silicon Valley at that time, specifically in Cupertino. So my mom started going to San Jose State University, which was part of the Berkeley and San Francisco State and San Jose State kind of triangle of colleges that were very active in the protestations against the Vietnam War and chemical companies. And this is when the rise of feminism was really happening and civil rights was really a powerful movement in the country. And my mom just dived in 100%. So mm-hmm. she's basically out of the house, going to college all the time, uh, which is pretty great. Uh, but, you know, she's a single mother. And two years into that, um, one day she goes, well, I'm going to go to the store this Saturday afternoon. I'm going to go to the store. She picks up her keys, purse from the table, and says, I'm going to go out and get some. Uh, just run to the store for some milk and uh, bread. And she doesn't come back. She just gets in her car and drives away, and she's gone. And she's gone for two years, so we don't hear from her at all. I don't hear a word from her, not a message, um, for two years. And that, you know, that was on a Saturday. She's not here Saturday night. She's not here Sunday. But Sunday morning, my dad comes home. He's back. He's home. (laughs) And he's married. Yes. So anyway, that's the way that little bit of my childhood unfolded.
1: So two things, at least, that we can glean from that. One is John has a terrific sense of humor and um, views this as a sort of tragic comedy because for us listening, it just tears at the heartstrings. There's no easy way to say these things, but it sounds as though your parents did a royal job of reducing it to the least... um, palatable way one by just flying the coop um, on the proverbial grocery run and the other just in the most matter-of-fact way Um, so you know you you i I think at that point um i'm going to dive into your book for a second you you started on i would say the path of resilience because you talk about i'm going to quote your book um page 33 When love enters your life, everything changes. When love leaves your life, nothing does. Love flies away today and tomorrow, you're exactly where you were before you left it. You wear the same clothes, you drive the same car, you watch the same television shows, you eat from the same dishes while sitting in the same chair at the same table by the same window you did before all the oxygen was sucked out of your life. Relentlessly and inexplicably, life without love continues. And I just, I, I heard it even in your telling of it, that, you know, there was the empty chair at the table. And when you were absorbing all of this, did you, did you take that in as a mystery, a big question? How was it as a kid to have that experience?
2: so for my dad it was a mystery as to how relationships just suddenly and inexplicably are erased that was a mystery right. in that how do you just leave like i didn't understand marriage or relationships i didn't get that my mom's disappearance was a true mystery i didn't know if she'd been murdered uh, abducted by aliens she's laying in a ditch somewhere bleeding maybe i i'm young for all i know people spontaneously combust and they just just dis- you know People maybe just disappear. I didn't know where she was. That was an actual mystery. Do you know do you see the difference?
1: Yes, absolutely because what no, I don't had, know where she is <laughs> yeah, you had no but clue. the one thing
2: i do I'm sorry,
1: yeah, I had no clue, but the one thing
2: I did know is that she would contact me. We were close i i we were a little too close in as she is a pretty erratic personality, uh and so I had learned as a kid to just manipulate her kind of emotionally, like really be deeply attuned to what her mood is so that I could learn to sway it one way or another. So in, mm-hmm. in that sense, we were close and she treated me like an adult. She's not a good mother, obviously, but she did have, she was good the way she talked to me as if I were an adult. And I really appreciated that as a kid. And it made me feel like we were closer than we might've felt. Maybe, I don't know how, I think all kids feel close to their moms, but I was, Definitely close to mine. So I didn't think she would just not contact me. That didn't seem really feasible at all. So clearly right. something was profoundly wrong. I just had no idea what it was.
1: Right. So you you kind of became precocious, right? You you had found a way to kind of um become enmeshed with her through manipulating um, her emotions almost like an adult would. It wasn't really a child relationship because that would have required a kind of automatic, um, you know, uh, uncompromising love kind of relationship. But you kind of earned your way into her sphere. And then, of course, you thought, well, it's just a matter of time. If I were a little kid, maybe she wouldn't bother. But, you know, I have this head partnership with her. We're head to head and she's going to get back to me like real soon. Um, What's your thinking? yeah.
2: Yeah, I definitely waited. I definitely waited every day. Every minute of every day I'm looking and you, it's weird the way your brain operates. Like I took to the idea that she was trying to communicate with me, but just, I wasn't able to read the messages well enough So any Mm -hmm. little pattern of things that I saw rocks strewn away a certain way on the street or a little piece of paper that that I would pick, I read every little piece of paper I found because maybe some way she's magically laid this message in my path. And if I pick it up and I can read it, if I could just decode what she's saying, she'll be telling me something or you really end up kind of going a little bit crazy because you just look, I was just so desperate to know what had happened to her that Mm -hmm. I kind of established this sort of language with the world. That really wasn't mm-hmm. happening at all. I was just yes. hoping to find some sort of sign. So you were, yeah, you <laughs> it were, was not fun.
1: Yeah. You were, you were yeah. kind of reading the tea leaves or reading the sky or looking at clouds for messages. But I think that right. there's something um, very beautiful and almost transcendent in in the pain of that because clearly you shouldn't have had to be doing that, deciphering the world that way. And she, in some way, um, allowed for you to internalize that it was your fault that you couldn't read the messages clearly enough, that you somehow were deficient in looking at the way the, the fish swam in the tank or, you know, what the guinea pig ate or didn't eat, or, you know, all the things that might be a sign. Um, and, and to me, it's, it's just unbelievably, it's unbelievably tender. Um, I want to ask you another question though, because in the passage that I read, the first um, sentence, you know, when you fall in love, everything changes. When you lose love, you know, sort of the bottom line is nothing changes. And I, I I really wonder about this premise because when you fall in love, okay, your innards become radiant and you become exuberant and that's an acceptable emotion. When you lose love, maybe, you know, because you're still driving the same cars, you're still at the same place, Matt. when you fall in love as well, but you're allowed to be who you are. I wondered if your discomfort and this cruelty of the way life goes on when you've lost the primal love of your life, your mother. I wondered if it was that those emotions were simply unacceptable. I mean, you were a boy going to school.
2: Well, the passage about uh, love, uh, the, different, the re- difference between when you have love and when you've lost love is not about him and his mother. That's a mm-hmm. statement that happens later in his life when he's in love and he's lived with this girl, this woman, this young woman for two years and she leaves. He drives her out. He destroys the relationship um, because essentially he's replaying that sort of dynamic that he grew up with. And that's... That's, so that's more of an, adult per, an adult's perception of tragedy. As we know, when you're an adult uh, uh, and you suffer a monstrous loss, it's, it's almost shocking how much the world just keeps going.
1: Right. Essentially,
2: nothing changes. That's, that's what that refers to. As a kid, mm-hmm. that loss that I suffered collapsed me. And he, here's the thing. It wasn't so much that I was – it was that I was wondering what happened to my mother – but at the same time, the woman that my father married, who moved into our house, who was basically my new mom, was a, her, was a deeply troubled person. I mean, really problematic. So not only was I, you know, trying to figure out what happened to my mom, but this new woman in our house, who, to uh, give her all the, you know, the, what happened with her is, she was raised mm-hmm. extraordinarily poor.
1: I, I mean, remember, she was a tight yeah, yeah.
2: And then and she there was, was just, the cra- you know, crazy about money.
1: Right. And the even crazier so, part was know. how you were supposed to be calling her mom, I think, the day after she moved in, which is another violation. <laughs> um, but, I mean, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's nutty. That's totally. But I'm going to take you on on what you just said, because there is um, the main thrust of the book, which I think is a gorgeous one, is that, you know, David, and um, the character, uh, um, he, he breaks off a relationship, a very meaningful relationship with Kate, which is where that passage followed. And it's almost like an intergenerational pattern, right, of cutoffs, where you just enact a cutoff. You're going to prevent yourself from having that pain. Um, so you're going to preempt it. Anyway, but I, I do believe, because then further, a little further along, you're talking about yourself. It's a flashback. It's a beautiful flashback. Um you're watching you're far up the street, your dad signaled braked and turned a corner and was gone. This is when your dad is leaving. And then he was just yeah. a kid standing in an empty street waving at nothing. He thought maybe he'd keep standing right where he was until a car came over running over him. No car came though. One step, two steps, three steps, three, the door there, the door opened, and then he couldn't move, he just couldn't. And I like okay there's an unresponsiveness from the universe right he's trying to just he wants the car to come even the car won't come um to end his misery and yeah. just that, that indifference of the universe um i think you did a lot with it and as a person you've done a lot with it and maybe could you just talk a little bit about humor and what you think humor what role it played as you developed then from these breakoffs.
2: Yeah, you know, I never know. I, I don't know where uh, my humor comes from. All I know is it's the most precious part of my life. It's always mm-hmm. been a, a kind of a... And I've never wanted to look at it too hard because it's how I live. I'm mostly a humorist, even though you can't tell from this book. Um, and, and I'm not. It, okay. It's also true that I'm not. I feel like ultimately... Humor is the only response to tragedy. In the end, it's the only thing that makes sense because in the end, we are living in a system which, is, which demands you give up. And giving up is kind of funny because it's like, well, here we go. It's, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we are born into a system that we, we, about which we only know one thing. And identity being the theme of your show, is another way of saying that is, we are born into a system in which we will never, the only thing we really know about what will happen to us is we're going to die. That's the only thing we're sure of. We don't know what came before. We don't know what's going to happen after, but we know we're going to get blanked out and the chances Mm -hmm. are, it's not going to be pretty at the end. You know, like we all, kind of we all know that. Mm -hmm. And so we're stuck in this, in this farce really in a way. And it,
1: yeah. And it's, and there's a comedy to it because in between the birth and the death that we know nothing about why they exist is our life, which we don't know why it exists. Yes. So, so
2: yeah. think and we're all just kind of, we're all just kind of out here going, well, this is weird.
1: This is weird. Like we're all right? out
2: here going, I should probably, yeah. And yet, and yet it's all so real. I don't mean yeah. to at all minimize people's pain. That's all, it causes, you know, life is terrible. It's hard. It's brutal it's short right. quote that famous and it's also delightful so it's mm-hmm. everything all the time it's a little yeah. overwhelming
1: it's kind of great that that's there how it is seems that, to me yeah no that's beautiful i mean it's that duality right of um tragedy and comedy all at once and the the way that love and like resentment and and confusion all just gets mixed up in one um, I also want to say that, um, you know, a response to trauma, okay, just from a sort of clinical viewpoint, even though I do believe that you're a humorist in this book, one who has a profound sense of the seriousness of life. And I think sort of like Jim Carrey, the same kind of thing. You know, we'd you can't have one without the other, but you switch when you have the trauma, that thing that cannot be processed, to the right side of your brain, which is creative and intuitive and where humor resides and spirituality resides. And I just have to say, John Shore, that, you know, the laughter in the spirits is a faith response by our spirit God's victory. So there's the laughing gods, for heaven's sake. I mean, it is a spiritual aspect to be funny and laughing at life. Um, so maybe you even... Absolutely. I don't... Thing. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I, I mean, ultimately, if I'm not... If you, I, the best thing that you can do at any given moment, really, is have fun. If you're not mm-hmm. having fun, something's gone terribly, terribly wrong. So I do tend to feel like finding the funny just became an instant instinct for me. And it's not pleasurable because I make other people laugh. I mean, I am that guy, but just internally, it just right. cracks me up. Most things crack me up if I, if I turn my mind that way in a second. And right. I do do that because I do feel like, what else are we really ultimately here for but pleasure? I mean, but fun. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know, I want to have fun in life,
2: even though, you know, it's, I understand well, life is not really fun for a lot of people all the time.
1: Right, and not neither for us, but I think you've asked the basic question, why not? Why not laugh? I mean, you're, you're, it's not just a, a coping mechanism. Sometimes it's a way of creating a little bit of distance. Okay, maybe sometimes it's a way of getting a little bit of approval and love. But at the same time, it's a real response to life and the absurdity of it. Um, he that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh is, is, is one of these quotes. And I just, I think it's a gift that you've given us in this book Um, And I wondered about residual, let's say, pain and whether or not, as an adult, you're still reliving some of the anguish from these cutoffs. I'm not going to give a spoiler alert. I do know how the book ends. But I want you to just um, frame it for us. Um, You know, how has it been to write the book, positive or negative, and to top it all off, We're going to take a short break. But, you know, overall, can you give us a thumbs up, thumbs down? And then we'll hear more about that when we come back. But you have about a minute to let us know if it's been positive or negative.
2: Uh, It's been completely positive. I waited literally my whole life to write this novel, which I always knew I would write. And I've been training myself as a writer, a professional writer uh, for 20 years waiting for this book. Because I, I knew I wouldn't write another novel before I wrote this one. But I basically wanted to wait till it, all the principal characters, the three parents, uh, had died. I didn't want to right. write it while they were still alive, and I didn't want to write uh, any other novel
1: before that. And it's been awesome. Yeah, it's. Is that about so a minute. <laughs> so now that you did, you did great. <laughs> Your timing is great, Perfect. just like a comic. Um, no, so when we come back, we're going to find out if there's more to come from John Shore, author of Everywhere She's Not. Stay with us. Don't go away.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand
2: 24-7.
0: Has your manuscript languished because you can't find the direction it wants to take? Or have you lost the motivation to finish and polish it for publication because it can be such a big, formidable task? Let Diane Dewey help you resolve your writing issues. Diane's manuscript coaching offers help with sticking points like the arc of your story and how to flesh it out finding the inner story and what you want to say, developing your message, the revelations that become your reader's takeaways, helping to rally the motivation to finish your project, and what to do next. We can analyze, edit, and advise you on publishing. Who are the next collaborators on your writing path? If you seek resolution to these and other questions, please contact Diane Dewey, author of the award-winning memoir, Fixing the Fates. Find her at truenordmedia.com. That's T-R-U-N-O-R-D media.com or on her author's page Dewey.com. Diane can also be found through social media. Connect with her through the links on the show page. Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Dropping in with Diane Dewey. We'd love to hear from you if you have a question or comment about the show. Send us an email to dewey at truenordmedia.com. That's the letter D, Dewey at trunordmedia.com. Now, back to dropping in.
1: And we're back with n John Shore author of everywhere she's not one of the most poetic titles everywhere anywhere I should say um, John you're uh, an authority on loss abandonment rebounding rebirth you um, for you going forward, um, I, I just want the listeners to know that you're a longtime magazine and newspaper writer. You've edited and ghostwritten several fiction and nonfiction best-selling books. And in 2014, in order to start writing Everywhere She's Not, you put on hiatus your personal blog, which since 2007 had been among the most read blogs in the country, receiving upwards of 300,000 views a month. So you, were, um, you had a column for the uh, Asheville Citizens Time, Citizen Time, Ashes to Asheville where you live, the first real-time serial novel ever published on the website of a ma- major daily newspaper. So I, I wanna then ask you um, and we'll delve back into the story, but since we are about rebirth, what do you think will happen next in terms of your writing career? Because now we're hooked. We want to hear more from you.
2: Well, that's sweet of you to say. Thank you. Um, the not the so the the blog that I ran did those numbers uh, three hundred thousand views a month for about five years there, right around from two thousand nine to two thousand twelve, two thousand thirteen. Um, so, it, in the course of that, I you know I generated a, a pretty large. I had a lot of uh, people that followed my writing. So, when I did this novel, I was able to publish it myself because. I funded it through a Kickstarter campaign. So when I did a Kickstarter campaign for it, uh, it actually raised more money uh, for a debut novel than any uh, debut novel in Kickstarter's history, which was like thirty-three thousand four hundred dollars. So great! I had a I had a I had a way to put this book out that I could be that I could make sure it got done properly. Right. Uh, so I did that, and now the book's been out there, and people read it. It seems to be going well. So. But because it was such a concentrated effort that took two or three years to write, I am now in a phase where I'm writing short stories. And Uh it's really been nice. I'm just putting them up everywhere. I'm sending them out on my newsletter. That's the best way for people to get them because it comes in cleanest in that. Or I'm putting them up on my blog. Also, a good place to read them because I don't have any ads on my blog. So it's just a clean, interactive experience. I'm putting them up on my Facebook page. I'm just... Okay,
1: where, where can people find you? Just give us the, the tags on the blog and the Facebook page.
2: Johnshore.com, J-O-H-N-S-H-O-R-E.com. That's me. And you can sign up for my newsletter there, and I'm sending out these stories. I'm doing one a month. I'm, I'm, sometimes I'll send out one that has more than one story in it, because I'm writing one about every three weeks, it looks like. And that's just free. I'm just giving those out to the world because I just think they're – it's just nice for me to be able to drop into that slightly different form than, than than a whole novel, uh, and then well, what novel I write next? I'm going to kind of wait and see.
1: Okay, people Very really hard.
2: want a sequel to this one.
1: I can tell because I, I because I, I certainly did. I sated sated my appetite. Um, I'm a recipient of your newsletter, and I love getting the short stories. So it reintroduces me to oh, your thank you. writing. Um, and I, I, I oh, as I've alluded, oh, yeah, no, my 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 pleasure. Um, I, as I've alluded to, you're a great humorist who also has a pretty good handle on the absurdity of life. So not to diminish um, it, but to put a spin on life that's um, filled with a kind of comic tragedy. I'm going to read a passage from "Everywhere She's Not." You're walking down the West Coast Highway, headed to the Surf Motel. Where you'll be staying for some time following your breakup with Kate, the self instigated, um, unknown in origin breakup with Kate, except that you don't really know how to handle, you know, intimacy, and that's a fair enough situation given your past. Yeah. But you now you're on foot; you're you're um, walking to the to the surf motel where your is run by a friend of yours, a dear friend, and acts as a kind of refuge for you. Um, And and here's what you say. You're you're imagining um, that you've written a brochure for this experience that you're having, which is very cold, very foggy, very miserable, Um, but you're going to write a brochure for the West Coast Highway. Tired of chasing people down who aren't frozen, whom others can easily hear screaming? tired of trying to attack people who you can't see and who can see you this is you're envisioning yourself as a an axe murderer and hell the west coast highway would be just the ideal scene for this of course you are and that's why we've just the three words for you you deranged maniac great coastal highways come live the dream <laughs> so i mean i i'm I'm in stitches, Um, and and I just want to say that it's an act of imagination. It's humor that takes you somewhere else out of your reality into another place, the self-created world, and I wondered if you felt as though Mm -hmm. humor had done that for you on other occasions.
2: I mean, that guy at that moment when he has that, you know, when he's just basically talking to himself because he's so cold, That's a low point in his life. And he just breaks. He's so cold and it's so dark and it's so foggy and he feels so vulnerable that he just kind of snaps into a place where he's imagining that this would be the perfect place for him to get murdered. (laughs) um, Why not? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I I don't make, I don't think in terms of I'm going to use humor to escape pain. I don't think that at all. I feel like I have too direct a relationship with pain. It's just that at some point we, it's just, we are in an absurd system because all we want is identity to get back to your theme. That's really all we want. We want to know who we are and why we're here and what we're doing. And we would like some consistency to our self image and we would like to feel pretty good about who we are. You know, we just want a basic identity. And generally, identity is connected to context. I'm a husband uh, when I'm with my wife. I'm a father when I'm with my child. I'm a, you know, employee at, at, at my job. But ultimately, when it comes to who we are in the largest possible context, we have no idea. Because right. we don't know what's and- going to happen to us after we die.
1: And That's where's the directory? Funny. Where's the directory on this? You know, where where's the guidebook anyway? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you yeah. might as yeah. well be videos? out the, Where where's the instructions here? I mean, we're supposed to be. We're right. supposed to know what to do next. And I, I think that it's know, you, so you, final. Yes, well, is final. It, I mean, or death final. is just so final. Yeah, but I think you make the most of it, being an empath and sensitive as you are, and having this close relationship with pain i i agree and that was an eye-opening statement you just made you know you're actually feeling more um and that's why the, the it strikes these chords of um you know elusiveness you're you know we're searching for an identity who the heck knows how to get that and secondly we're looking for love and where is that all the time you know where is it exactly we go looking for it and um, I want to just allude to the, a later se- section of the book where um, you, you have even a more complete, what I would call a more complete reckoning, day of reckoning, um, a, a more complete kind of breakdown right on, on the beach. Um, and can you talk about, you've, you've now re-encountered your mother. She does come back into your life, but she's kind of a phantom. What happened when, when you reconnected?
2: Uh, so he does, she comes back, she suddenly reappears in his life uh, when he is 12. And she's just a deeply problematic person. I don't spend time in the book talking about why she might be the way she is. I'm just very clear about the way she is. And the way she is is what anybody you know, would recognize as a, just a, a profoundly... Um, complete clinical narcissist. Mm-hmm. So she's incapable of relating to him or her daughter the way like, you would expect her to. So she's a problem. But he continues to be, you know, canine loyal to her because it's his mother. And he spent so long without her that it just he just continues to try to treat her in a way that he just wishes that really she would treat him. And finally, there is a scene in the book where as a young adult, as he's 22, and has broken up with Kate and is living in this motel that's run by a a friend of his, this gay man who's actually a mentor to him. And Mm -hmm. on a side note, one of the reasons I wrote this novel is because I wanted to show what a friendship between a straight man and a gay man actually looks like in real life. So that's kind of a side note, but the guy who runs that that motel by the sea is is a gay man who's essentially David's mentor, his spiritual mentor, really. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he goes to his mom's house for Thanksgiving. It's a bad scene. He, it's something in him snaps and he just heads for the ocean. And uh, yeah, it's a, uh, you know, he finally kind of realizes, I mean, he finally definitely realizes that she's never going to love him, that she never has loved him, that she never gave a crap about him. And it's, and neither did his father and neither did his sister. And he's really been alone in the world. He's really is alone in the world. And he shucks this fantasy that he's had, that he's part of a group, that he's part of a family. He realizes that he's not. And that's a very low moment for him. And as you know, at that moment, he gets, he almost drowns in the ocean. He just gets slammed by a wave and has a long way to walk to get back to the motel in the dark and he has to take off all of his clothes because the sand is just wrecking his body. He can't walk. So I mean, this is a low point of this guy's life.
1: He, yeah.
2: You know, he's kind
1: of uh, walking naked,
2: a... you know. Too... Go ahead. Yeah. I'm sorry.
1: And what a great metaphor that is, right? You're finally naked, right? You got all your clothes are off. Yes. Get by the wave of truth. Um, I think it's, yeah. I think there's double edged to it. It's not just that these people will never love you. It's that you did nothing to deserve that cutoff or that rejection or that perceived rejection. You, in fact, were always worthy and as every child is innocent. Um, And I I think that this sort of redemptive moment um, where you come to grips with that is incredibly liberating, even though you're really cold really sick, you come out of it and you are stronger for it. Um, this is something, I think, like a rebirth. Um, and I keep connecting you to the character of David, but I feel as though this is something that's happened to you. Do you feel you came away as another person that a kind of a revitalized person from all of this?
2: I will say this. I think that ultimately the only force in the universe that can really change you is love. Mm -hmm. If you love somebody hard enough, strongly enough, I think that that's the only thing that will make you change because there will be things about you that will make uh, the person, that will bring pain to the person you love if you don't change that way. So in this guy's Mm -hmm. case, he is not good at intimacy. He doesn't understand it in a long term way because the effect of what happened to him as a kid, and this did happen to me. And it's something I struggle with to this day. I don't know if it's a struggle. It's just a way my mind is set up. I don't mm-hmm. do well. I don't think in terms of the future. I just, mm-hmm. that's why I'm a good writer. I'm super good at right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not good at, at looking ahead because in my brain, however things are, well, they'll change. Right. So don't invest in the future because you don't know what's going to happen, right? That's what I learned as a kid.
1: Okay. Well, that doesn't work
2: but, in mm-hmm. a long-term relationship
1: where you have to make a commitment, but it does work in writing. For that, we're grateful because we have a truly immersive novel here. Um, In the time that we do have left, which is getting rather short, um, I really feel as though you've touched on um, a kind of self-love too, where you've drawn boundaries around yourself by not allowing the people who have hurt you and reject you, um, to not allowing them to do that anymore. You've said no. So give us one final thought with the minute that we have left. It's been a joy, John Shore Jr., having you. What do you want people to know?
2: Oh, well, relative to that dynamic that you just uh, suggested, um, yeah, I would say that generally uh, forgive people their dysfunction. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you go through life, you know, don't try to really keep people in any particular space relative to you, just let them be in the space they're in. And as long as they're not trying to harm you or harm others, uh, just let them, let them be. I find that as I get older, especially, the amount of damage that people are, can do to me uh, or, is pretty minimal. I mean, unless you're coming it's at me with a two-by-four, I'm pretty comfortable just to let you spin around. You know what I mean?
1: Me too. I just think
2: that we can hang on to our peace if it's informed by love.
1: That's right. Thank you very much, John am sure it's been a beautiful experience being with you thanks so much for dropping in with us thank you see you next week thank
0: you so much for dropping in please join diane dewey again next friday at 8 a.m pacific time and 11 a.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel we'll see you then